The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We are discussing In Defense of Sanity, the best essays that you could just in it. Who's discussing this book? Myself, Father Fessio, uh, the one of the editors, Joseph Pierce, and Vivian Dudrow. You know, uh, it's hard for me not to read ahead as you prepare for this because I love reading Chesterton. When I got to number 27, the Pickwick Papers, Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens, which we'll cover maybe next week. But so I said, well, I better go back and reread Pickwick Papers, you know. So I did. I started reading it. And I want to quote this from page 74 in my edition. Uh, here's what the narrator, Charles Dickens, says. There are very few moments in a man's existence when he experiences so much ludicrous distress or meets with so little charitable commiseration as when he is in a pursuit of his own hat. A vast, de- a vast deal of coolness and a peculiar degree of judgment are requisite in catching a hat. A man must not be precipitate or he runs over it. He must not rush into the opposite extreme or he loses it altogether. The best way is to keep gently up with the object of pursuit, to be wary and cautious, to watch your opportunity well, get gradually before it, and then make a rapid dive, seize it by the crown, and stick it firmly on your head, smiling pleasantly all the time as if you thought it as a good joke as anybody else. There was a fine, gentle wind, and Mr. Pickwick's hat rolled sportively before it. Now, <laughs> what does that remind us of? That's great. I, I, one, one of my predilections is looking for sources in works of literature, you know, what the, the intertextual sources that uh, an author is used. That's a perfect example there. That, that's oh, clearly that's Chesterton's source. <laughs> yes. So that for those... in real life, <laughs> because as we know, art imitates life and life imitates art, right? So. Really. Sounds like a vicious circle or a virtuous circle to me, but I, I believe we are on the essay called The Twelve Men. Is that correct? It is correct. Uh, and I'm not sure. We should just proceed, I guess, and anybody who wants to talk about a particular essay may do so, and whoever doesn't may not do so. Uh, I, 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 sorry, please. I, I, mean, sorry, I, I, I think this one is a particularly – Contemporary relevant uh, essay, mm-hmm. Joseph. But you're about to say something. Well, I, basically, great minds think alike. I was, I was just going to. It's not. It's not one of the essays I've actually 
want to focus on particularly, but, but what it has to tell us about the danger of trusting experts with the most important things and the fact that experts are, can't actually see the thing itself because they've become too accustomed to it. And I was just going to add to that that the other problem with experts is they're such specialists they don't actually see where their field of expertise fits into the bigger picture. So, I mean, as regards our own covid times, for instance, you know, people that are experts in disease control uh, are, are going to give it the advice based upon controlling the disease, but they're not going to be experts on the ramifications of the methods of control on the wider society because that's not their field of expertise. So when we then worship the experts, we're actually worshipping a very myopic, narrow view of things. Interestingly, on page 49 at the bottom, he says, the trend of our epoch up to this time has been consistently towards socialism and professionalism. That is ruled by experts. Yep. Yeah, and, and big government working together. Socialism and professionalism. Big government and experts working hand in hand. What's what's uh, this? What's also great about this chapter is it's another example of Chesterton taking a very common and commonly overlooked thing in life and causing you to look at it in a fresh way. In this case, the jury. You know how many of us just take for granted the jury system that we have in our society, and uh, his pointing out that it's precisely not a panel of experts that gives it its genius, that makes you appreciate it more than you did before. Yeah, and, and, and of course, the conclusion uh, is, is you know, that little spin or twist in the tale. When it, when it wishes uh, anything done which is really serious, it collects 12 of the ordinary men standing around. The same thing was done, if I remember right, by the founder of Christianity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, yeah, I want to spend more, a little more time on this. I'll go back to you took the last sentence, Joseph. I want to go back to the first sentence, typical Jesuit. The other day, while I was meditating on morality, <laughs> I mean, okay, who wanders around meditating on morality? Well, Chesterton does. Right. Uh, well, I like him. I have no idea who Mr. H. Pitt is, but that, that that's almost Python-esque. Now, the, the other day, while I was meditating on morality and Mr. H. Pitt, so I don't know who Mr. H. Pitt is, but to meditate on him uh, certainly brings up sort of uh, Monty, Monty Python-type images in my mind. <laughs> okay. Well, then, uh, this is a little longer quote, but I want to read it because I think it's important. Page, page 50 at the bottom there, new paragraph. Now, one of these four or five paradoxes which should be taught to every infant prattling at his mother's knee is the following. That the more a man looks at a thing, the less he can see it. And the more a man learns a thing, the less he knows it. Now, that's a paradox. The Fabian, now Fabians were socialists at his time, argument of the expert that the man who is trained should be the man who is trusted would be absolutely unanswerable if it were really true that the man who studied a thing and practiced it every day went on seeing more and more of its significance. But it is not. He goes on seeing less and less of its significance. That is its relation to everything else. In the same way, alas, we all go on every day unless we are continually goading ourselves into gratitude and humility, seeing less and less of the significance of the sky or the stones. 
Now, now this is a new paragraph for him, a new section. Now it is a terrible business to mark a man out for the vengeance of men. But it's the thing to which a man can grow accustomed as he can do other terrible things. He can even grow accustomed to the sun. So the idea is you're used to seeing criminals, you're seeing crime and so on. And so, you know, you, you begin to see it no longer as human being, but as a specialist where you want a jury that's not seen this all the time to try and judge this on the basis of their common experience. Yeah. You know, Sherlock Holmes, uh, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, through Sherlock Holmes, has a very interesting comment that a doctor gone bad is the worst kind of person. And uh, it's precisely because the more he looks at a human body as a thing of study and starts to have to accustom himself to inflicting pain and discomfort and things like that. A man can get used to that. And that, and that's a terrible thing for a man to have to get used to. And we see the same thing with police officers and uh, uh, criminal lawyers and soldiers and right. This kind of desensitization to the pain that you're inflicting, um, which might be necessary to do the job of a doctor or a butcher or a cop, you know, but it comes with great risk actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm switching subjects, but on the same point, a politician gets so used to spinning the truth to win the election that it, that basically lying becomes customary and truth becomes something he doesn't really understand any longer. Yes, yes. Well, and, and to take a different subject on the same theme, I've had said for many years that, you know, when America was first, the church began her expansion here, you had to have pioneers who, who were very vigorous men who made decisions and so on. But after the church was established, who became bishops? Well, the people who, you know, were, made friends with people who got along well and, and so didn't have a lot of enemies and so on, which is a wonderful thing. But the problem is you, you get some young uh, kind of zealous Catholic priest who says, well, you know, for the good of the church, I, I, I want to prepare myself to be a bishop someday. But I, but I want to, I want to do that so that I can, you know, bring back the church to this authentic, you know, and primitive type of zeal. Well, okay, so to do that, he says, well, I better get along, I better be careful, and not be controversial, and uh, you know, be nice to people who I disagree with. Well, that forms habits, and if this person with a good intention, who had holy ambition to become a bishop to good for the good of the church, develops those habits then guess what? Once he's a bishop, he's going to act like the other bishops he was trying to reform once he was, when he was a younger priest. Anyway. Absolutely. Vivian. Well, back to this point about experts, you know, uh, when I was a young mother raising young children, I was always dubious of books on child rearing <laughs> written by people with PhDs in child psychology, but no children of their own. <laughs> I know. There was an old Reader's Digest joke. Uh, when I first got married, I had six theories on raising children. I now have six children and no theories. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually very good. I'm going to steal that one. That's, that's really good. <laughs> uh, so, should we move on to the shop of ghosts? Yes. yes I mean, and your this introduction is... with Dickens is a great introduction to this chapter, isn't it, Joseph? 
It is absolutely, and this was one of the ones that I did actually select. I mean, several obviously there were three three people selecting these, and some essays were selected by more than one person. Uh, they are, you know, but I, I don't remember if the other two selected this. But this is why I, I remember selecting. It's a great favorite of mine, and it's it's an essay that's almost also a short story. In other words, it's almost fiction. Yeah, um, well, it, it, not almost fiction. You say it's, I, I, think, I think, entirely fiction. Well, no, I think the vision of the of the toy shop in Battersea was real. I think that he that then allowing his imagination to run away with him was real. Uh, and, then, and then he talks about the whole thing, such a language that, yes, we move into something. And, and the sort of language, you know, uh, it was as if I had stepped across some border in the soul. OK, so he's allowed this this optical illusion of of, of the shop window. Uh, becoming a brilliantly lit stage, top of page 53. The lit shop window became like the brilliantly lit stage when one is watching some highly colored comedy. I forgot the gray houses and the grimy people behind me as one forgets the dark galleries and the dim crowds of the theater. So now he's suspending his disbelief. Um, so, yeah, he steps, if you like, he steps through the wardrobe, through the looking glass, um, yeah. and has this has this mystical ex experience, but I think it's rooted on a, in, a, in a real moment, all right, all right. In real life Battersea, you know. Um, okay, I, I concede. But what I love about this, just to, just to summarise it without reading it, uh, you know that that he wants to buy one of the, one of the one of the gifts, uh, and, and and the man's the old man there with the beard says, "Oh no, no, I I I, I don't I don't." sell things i just give them as gifts <laughs> uh, and uh, you know and, and he says um good heavens i said what can you mean why you might be father christmas i am father christmas he said apologetically and blew his nose again you know and then father christmas says he's you know he's dying you know and then and, th and then we have these various characters from history starting with charles dickens going mm -hmm. right back to robin hood who speaks in some sort of mixture of norman french english um so you know, going right back to the medieval times and various like Ben Johnson and, and other, other 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 people, and he's always appeared to be dying. <laughs> you know, and, and this is you know, what Tolkien would call the you know, as a Christian seeing history as the long defeat, with only occasional glimpses of final victory. And, and Chesterton's point is that it always seems that the Christianity is losing, that the the, that the wicked worldly people are in power. That no, this is the end. Surely we can't hold on this time, you know. And yet, three centuries later, we're in exactly the same scenario as we were three centuries ago. And he's showing that you know that um, that you always die. That you know, the point at the end is uh, when Dickens says, "I understand everything now." You know that you, you say you're you're dying. That you're. Um, I understand. He cried, "You will never die." So again, this, this beautiful understanding of the of the, of, of the parental struggle between the world and the devil, uh, the prince of this world, who's always winning in terms of politics, in terms of who has the seats of power, whether it's in the church or out of the church, you know, uh, and yet never wins. But never wins because ultimately Christ is, is not going to be defeated. I can't add anything to that. Uh, I mean, I first put a big question mark, you know, uh, in the title page of this show, what is this all about? Because it's not, it's partly essay, but it's also largely fiction. And so it, it just kind of caused me to wonder what, what, what's going on here. But 
You know, I see the point now that you've explained it so well. Vivian, do you have anything? If not, that's okay. Well, well I just love this line on page 55 where uh, Chesterton says to Father Christmas, you may be dead, I replied. You ought to know. But as for what they are doing, do not call it living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. You know. That's priceless. And one, one other quick thing on that before we pass on, the difference between Father Christmas and Santa Claus. Obviously, you know, they've been sort of fused. But Father Christmas actually goes back to the medieval passion plays. Um, and it was actually during the time of the Puritans. Uh, when you know they actually banned Christmas, the, the Puritans, yes. um, that Father Christmas then became, if you like, a symbol of resistance of Merry England and Catholicism like, against this godlessness, or godly godlessness. Um, you know, so so again, Father Christmas uh, is is rooted in Catholic history and also in Catholic resistance to those who are trying to not to kill Father Christmas. Yes. When my children were little and I was teaching them English history, I would say the only thing you need to know about Oliver Cromwell is that he outlawed Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) The white witch incarnate. (laughs) That says it all. Well, and of course, the the other man that he got fused with in the American experience, Santa Claus, is just an abbreviated form of St. Nicholas. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a real person. And uh, it's just the commercialization of these things that have given us this absurd, uh, you know, what we call Santa Claus now. But it's good to reclaim Father Christmas and St. Nicholas. Absolutely. You bet. Yes. That's right. And that's why it's important to have Christmas still as a national holiday, even if it's commercialized and so on. We'll return to the Foreign Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, 
What you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudrow, and Joseph Pierce. Well, there's something we should be thankful for. Uh, maybe we should give gifts to each other who have given so much to us. I mean, that's not a bad thought to have at least once a year. Right. Yes. So, onward to a romantic in the rain. This use of images here is just marvelous, just marvelous. Um, all the things he does with rain. Uh, from a lit- just a literary standpoint, you know, talking about, um, you know, on page 58, you know, the forests are apparently enjoying it, the rain, that is. The trees rave and reel to and fro like drunken giants. They clash boughs as revelers clash cups. They roar undying thirst and howl the health of the world. It's just such a marvelous thing to do with trees in a storm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just beautiful imagery, it's beautifully English. No, I mean, yes. Right, and I can see myself, you know, imagining storms like that that I've seen and then seeing Chester in there watching them and then reveling in them because of the way he describes them. I mean, it's, it's really, yes. he, yeah. he, makes, he, he makes things more alive for us, it seems to me, at least for me. Yes, and does. then this other uh, use of images on, on 59, um, this is one of the real beauties of rainy weather, that while the amount of original and direct light is commonly lessened, the number of things that reflect light is unquestionably increased. There is less sunshine, but there are many, there are more shiny things, such beautifully shiny things as pools and puddles and Macintoshes. It is like moving in a world of mirrors. Uh, yeah. It makes, me, it makes me actually, the next time it rains, want to just go outside and enjoy it. You know, one time I was driving through the rain in my neighborhood here, and there was a little boy about maybe eight or nine years old out in the rain with no raincoat singing, I'm singing in the rain. <laughs> I'm <laughs> and he's literally splashing the puddles with his with his feet and he's opening his mouth with his tongue and I just thought is that just the most precious image of childhood you know and heaven forbid that anything sh- anyone should tell that child he's being childish right I mean the window for him to be able to do that is so brief it was just glorious that might have been that might have been me that you were seeing. I, I'm, I remember doing that. Maybe I know how I might have been older than a child when I did it. You know. Well, that's uh, the whole point. If we made childlike, we can still do that, and that's that's the beauty of it. I do remember, Father, for instance, back in in Hurricane Charlie <laughs> in Florida, where you actually suggested that you and I should just tie ourselves to a tree so we could actually experience the <laughs> hurricane, right? And and if I'd been a single man. I'd have said, let's do it. But I thought that's probably 
not sensible when I've got a you know, little baby boy. Well, that now that you remind me, I actually did. I didn't tie myself to a tree. When the hurricane came right through Ave Maria, the, the, the heart of it came through there, I, I went outside, you know, and I walked into the wind, 80, 90 mile an hour wind, whatever it was. I was concerned about, you know, bricks coming in. I kept my eyes open and everything. But it was a warm, beautiful rain. And I just, I, you know, it's so wonderful. Come at me. Come at me. It was wonderful. Right. So, so, yeah, so this is this is Father Fezzo. Even then, nearly 20 years ago, was not a child in the physical sense of the word, um, but certainly still childlike, which, which you know, just delightful. Can if I, if not what, childish, yes, go ahead. <laughs> make two other comments about this if I can. One, a, a literary connection. The other, just a personal reminiscence. So, the, first of all, the way that the... Um, the way that the essay finishes, the final couple of sentences, three sentences, but wherever trees and towns hang head downwards in a pygmy puddle, the sense of celestial topsy-turvidom is the same. This bright, wet, dazzling confusion of shape and shadow, of reality and reflection, will appeal strongly to anyone with a transcendental instinct about this dreamy and dual life of ours. It will always give a man the strange sense of down at the skies. Let me say one thing. This is a very large part of the imagery of the man who was Thursday, which Chesterton wrote back uh, two or three years before he wrote this essay. Um, you know, and what Chesterton's do- using is, is the puddle uh, as something which turns everything upside down. In other words, the paradox, making us look at something from a completely fresh angle, standing on our heads. Well, looking down the puddle and seeing the sky beneath our feet makes us stand on our heads. So that whole imagery the paradox is, is a large part of the central imagery of the man who was thursday uh, and the other thing i want to say is that uh, I, this is this is a, a, an aphorism of chess that changed my life literally right? this one sentence about umbrellas disparaging umbrellas right shut up this is page like page 59 about five, six lines down shut up an umbrella is an unmanageable walking stick open it is an inadequate tent. Right? <laughs> Not only do I love that, but I am actually, since, I, since first reading that when I was probably about in my early 20s, I have spurned the use of umbrellas ever since. It changed my life. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm making an allusion here to C.S. Lewis in the third of his book of his trilogy, uh, That Hit Your Strength. Uh, and Joseph and Vivian, you can correct my faulty memory here, but there's something in there in the beginning where I think it's a rainy, stormy day, and uh, uh, someone says, oh, oh, this weather. Oh, I, I, I love this weather. You love this weather? Well, yes, I love weather. You love weather? What kind of weather? Oh, just weather. I love weather, <laughs> you know. So it doesn't matter. The sun is shining or it's raining or it's cloudy or snowing. There's something good to see in it, and Chesterton is a man who can do it. Yeah. Well, you know what the Norwegians say? There's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. Um, that's like I sent around a cartoon this weekend about uh, someone a couple looking for a house and the real estate was there and the couple said uh, well we'd like something more expensive and the real estate says well we'll come back tomorrow I'll show you the same house yeah Uh, but uh, my friends in Michigan you know, remind me that uh, if you don't like the weather, just wait an hour and you'll get something different. All right. So should we move on to the mad official? By all means. 
Uh, I have nothing I want to say on it particularly, but well, you will you will pretty soon because I'm going to quibble with Chesterton here. Okay, and I expect you to defend him. But on the bottom of page sixty one, the first page of the chapter, he says in his paradoxical way, a nation is not going mad when it does extravagant things, so long as it does them in an extravagant spirit. Crusaders not cutting their beards till they found a Jerusalem. Okay, so that's a non-mad nation, right? Jacobins calling each other harmonious and Epaminondas when their names were Jacques and Jules. Well, are we giving that example as France as a nation that had not gone mad? Well, actually, a nation is not going mad when it does extravagant things as long as it does have an extravagant spirit. Well, I, I'm not going to defend Chesterton. I actually wrote an argument, uh, an article some, some some time back called uh, "Arguing with Chesterton," and it was uh, exactly on his um, uh, romantic uh, view of the French Revolution, um, which he actually got from Belloc. Um, now, by the by, two two decades after this, they both basically turned their back on this romanticizing the French Revolution, but in their early work. Um, you do see this uh, romantic understanding of the French Revolution. And again, in the matter was Thursday, he says the one thing that's never mad is a mob. I thought, you sure? Yes. <laughs> I mean, the mob is always mad, quite frankly. Yes. The one thing you're never going to find in a mob is sanity. That's, that's Chesterton taking his democratic spirit too far. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I, I appreciate his democratic spirit. I appreciate his uh, rooting for the little guy his his uh, true esteem for the common man and all the rest. But even that can be taken too far, and you end yeah. up with a mob. Yes. And his, and his biggest weakness, uh, and Belloc's biggest weakness, I say, is their romanticizing the French Revolution, at least in their early writings. It's less so in their later writings. Well, then- but his other point about people growing used to their unreason uh, is an important one in this, in this uh, essay, right? Um, on uh, page 63, uh, when they okay. give birth to a fantastic fashion or a foolish law, they do not start or stare at the monster they've brought forth. They've grown used to their own unreason. And I think right. that, sure, that sure is true. Yeah. I have a few things to say when we get to this next chapter, the mystagogue, which is, a, I think, a phenomenal chapter. Uh, but I'll, I'll yield the floor first to anybody who wants to take it. Well, I'm actually, I've got... I'm 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 focusing on the following one, the architect of spears. So I'm happy to cede the floor to you, Father or Vivian. Go ahead and start, Father. Well, I mean, I'll uh, <laughs> I'll start at the end to page sixty-eight to see if I can get any you know resistance here. Uh, but I've always been you know like C.S. Lewis, kind of the last medieval man. I, I like art that is representational, I like poems, poems that rhyme and have rhythm. And so when I find him saying this, who really knows art, new paragraph on 68. Now the eulogists of the latest artistic insanities, parenthesis, cubism and post-impressions and Mr. Picasso, close parenthesis, are eulogists and nothing else. And he continues, they circulated a piece of paper on which Mr. Picasso has had the misfortune to upset the ink and try to dry it with his boots. 
and they seek to terrify democracy by the good old anti-democratic muddlements that the public does not understand these things, that the likes of us cannot dare to question the dark decisions of our lords. I'm sorry. Amen, brother. Let me say something here, if you don't mind. Again, I wrote something about the conservative fairly recently about this episode of Batman, <laughs> the 1966 TV series Batman, where it's an absolute lampoon of modern art, and they actually have you know various modern artists, and one has a, has a monkey who just throws paint at the canvas, another one you know gets in the bath of paint and comes out and rolls on the canvas, and everybody it's a lampoon. It's absolutely, and this is 1966 at the height of the Andy Warhol and and the rest of it. Uh, it, and it it really does show the power of comedy to prick the preposterous elitism of these, these movements, you know? Yes. But, yeah, it, but so Vivian, you're pretty, to, you're pretty uh, good. At, you're pretty good at defending some things, which there, there are some good qualities in them, which maybe miss, you know, I miss, but would you defend cubism and post-impressionism and Picasso in any way? Would I? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I figured it. <laughs> In, in, in this sense that, um, you know, the artist is, is attempting to communicate something <laughs> and uh, often, maybe not always, but um, and so my, I, I do try to understand it from I do try to understand what the artist is doing or saying, even if it's in a form that aesthetically doesn't please me or um, I, I'm just I have the intellectual curiosity or whatever it is to try to figure out what they're saying, why they're saying it. I mean, part of um, Picasso's dismantling of the human form uh, has also to do a little bit with the um, project of modernity to dehumanize and dismantle the human person. And so what you see in the art is something really quite ugly about modern warfare, modern society, and so on. Now, uh, I also happen to believe that Picasso was something of a pervert. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not, and I'm also, my, my... Also something of a mercenary, because there are stories about Picasso where he would, you know, at a, at a restaurant, um, uh, doodle on the back of the check and then sign it. Because uh, they know that he knew the check would never be, would never then actually be cashed because it's worth more because Picasso's doodled on it, oh. than it would be if they cashed a check. I mean, you know, this is, uh, you know, you could, uh, the best you could say is he's got a sense of humor, but I actually tend to think it's just, he's just well, me. It, it sort of reminds me of the Charlie Chaplin uh, skit where he has a fly on a string and he eats the majority of the soup, then tosses the fly in the bowl, then calls for the waiter to take that bowl and bring him another one. <laughs> and then <laughs> Throws the fly back. Okay, so, uh, but but so I. This is not. I uh, just because I try to see what Picasso might be saying. Now he does a lot of very warped, perverted things as well. I mean, I don't even need to describe them to you because it's profane to do so. But um, so I'm not defending the man, Picasso. I'm not talking about the man, Picasso. I'm just talking about some of his. So anyway. That's all. I, <laughs> I I would also, Vivian, defend so, some 20th century modern art. I actually, one of my favorite artists, this is confession time, is Salvador Dali. Now, now Salvador Dali also did some 
first things in art that we wouldn't want to describe or discuss. But on the other hand, you know, his crisis from John of the Cross has become a classic of religious art. Um, and, and he certainly did have the ability to uh, depict things realistically. He had the, 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 the craftsmanship, uh, the draftsmanship. I mean, he was a genuine artist, um, uh, and he was moving in the right direction. I mean, he, he returned to some sort of quixotic uh, practice of the faith. Um, he certainly opposed communism uh, very vigorously. So, you know, that, I, I think we would be wrong to just dismiss, you know, anything from post-impressionism onwards as, as, as bad. I think most of it is. <laughs> well, but, but I, I don't even, you know? I don't judge... Um... What am I trying to say? I don't necessarily engage the art just because he's moving in the right direction. He might be moving in the wrong direction, but there still might be something there to see, to hear, to anyway. And that's how I engage art. But not everybody. Well, no, but I mean, I, I'm, I'm very primitive in this. I, I look at the art itself. I don't care who did it or when or why or what his motivations were. I want to see, is it something beautiful? Does it, does it strike me as something valuable and uh and there is a, I, I forget who did this a study on picasso where uh he had these you know off and on relationships with women uh and when things are going well with the woman he was living with i mean all of a sudden the feminine forms were kind of integrated and whole and beautiful and then, then when he broke up it was a problem then all of a sudden they got dismembered I actually saw an exhibit of that very thing they were it was an exhibit of picasso's notebooks and uh, this was exactly what they showed because it was not only these sketches and the uh, studies that then became paintings, but also some of his writings and rantings. Uh, and this is exactly what it showed, that when, his, when things were going well with his mistresses, his art took this kind of form. And then when they were going badly. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I, that to me, I find that fascinating. I enjoyed the entire exhibit. I looked at every single thing that was there and uh, but you know so well, i joseph sorry, said, oh, since I, was, I was just i was just gonna do what i usually do and just you know be, be time monitor and, and and suggest that we've had half an hour um and uh but then you know then we have to decide what we want to do uh because we didn't get obviously up to the sa20 no but i was going to say because you have some things you want to say about the architecture of Spe architecture spears yes let's start that with that next week Okay, how far do you want people to read, though? I don't know, 10 more. Ch I, we should always try and say 10 essays ahead of where we are. Okay, so if, that's, if that is uh, 15, let them read up to maybe uh, 25, The Meaning of Dreams. Actually, 24 would be 10. That's right. We're 25. I know that. I know that. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thanks, everyone, and uh, we hope to see you next week. Anybody who's left still watching or listening to us. See you next week for the Forum Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.